Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. On the 7th of January 1692, a vast congregation filled the Church of St. Martin in the Field for the funeral of one of the country's most celebrated thinkers. The Bishop of Salisbury, Gilbert Burnett, preached a sermon in which he praised the deceased for his constant looking into nature and yet more constant study of religion and a directing and improving of the one by the other. The dead man was Robert Boyle, a founding member of the Royal Society in 1660 and a major force in 17th century natural philosophy. His work covered many fields, from theology to medicine and oceanography, but is best known for his original work on the nature of gases and his pioneering chemical experiments, which have led some to regard him as the first modern scientist. With me to discuss the life and work of Robert Boyle are Simon Schaffer, Professor of the History of Science at the University of Cambridge, Michael Hunter, Emeritus Professor of History at Birkbeck College, University of London, and Anna-Marie Roos, Senior Lecturer in the History of Science and Medicine at the University of Lincoln. Simon Schaffer, Robert Bow was born in 1627 in Ireland, the youngest son of 14 children. Would you say a bit more about his childhood? He was the seventh son of one of the most powerful men in Ireland, Richard Boyle, Earl of Cork, the Great Earl, who, for a long time in Boyle's life, represented a very major influence. Richard Boyle was uh, a leader of uh, the settler uh, community in Ireland, an enemy of some uh, English attempts to rein in their power, the purchaser of Walter Raleigh's estates, fabulously wealthy and landed. And it's clear that he played a major moral and exemplary influence in Robert Boyle's life. Um, Not only that, but the direction that was given to the young Boyle's education comes from his father. Boyle's mother died when Boyle was but three, and Boyle was sent at the age of eight to Eton, um, where he would have studied the conventional curriculum. There are some, I think, very revealing stories about his brief time at Eton, notably that he suffered from melancholy, he was offered romances to read, but they made him rave rather than cure him. Um, And at the age of eight... Again, very much under his father's influence, Boyle was sent overseas on the grand tour to be tutored. What did happen on this overseas tour? Because he was he was put in the hands of tutors and taken abroad and uh, for quite a while. Yes, he was there for several years, uh, right up until 1644, right up until he was 17. Much of that time he was in Geneva, the great fortress and headquarters of continental Calvinist Protestantism. His tutor was a French Huguenot, Isaac Markhams, who um, clearly had an influence, probably a major one, on Boyle's practical orientation to religion. And together with his brother, Boyle was, well, in Geneva, then taken over the Alps to Italy. Um, we know this, or we know some of these details because of Boyle's autobiographical writings which are fascinating. Um, He visited Florence where he debated 
the Hebrew scriptures with the local Jewish com community. He was allegedly propositioned by two monks. Um, he visited Rome, uh, where he maintained, um, or allegedly maintained, a fairly hostile relationship to the Catholic establishment. But it was that training in Orthodox religion and in the rudiments of traditional um, scholastic philosophy that I think lay the groundwork for what Boyle will then become. Michael Hunter, so we're not talking a man. We're not talking about a boy or a young man who became immediately interested in science. But he was immediately interested, it seems, or early interested in religion. Can you tell us of the significance of that uh, at the time for him and in his later work? One of the episodes that's reported in the autobiography that Boyle wrote that Simon has referred to it was a conversion experience when, in a, during a thunderstorm, he worried about his preparedness for, for the final judgment and made a commitment to serve God for the rest of his life. And this was accompanied by the experience of religious doubt and, again, this had a, an influence on the rest of his life because he felt it important that he should... Um, understand and be a sort of powerful champion for, 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 for Christian doctrine to those who doubted it or attacked it. So it does seem as if that was a formative moment in his life and, and, and that it was during that, that those continental travels that he, um, that, that, that he started to develop that commitment. When he got back to England in 1644, after his travels, he put that into practice by writing effectively religious and moral treatises trying to encourage his peers to um to to to, to pursue piety and 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 morality i mean the, the, the many of these writings survive and i have to say they're quite hard to read they if 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 that is all boyle had ever written he wouldn't be we wouldn't be around this table discussing him today but um but nevertheless you know he thought that this was an important mission at that point he also um d d developed an interest well he, in fact his the interest that he developed um in response to um his raving in in, in romance. Speaking of what Simon said about the raving, I didn't yeah. question him about the raving because I wouldn't question Simon about it. Well. But what, what does he mean by the raving? Maybe Ra you can discuss it between yes, you Yes, raving, it, it seems to be a kind of inability to, to, to concentrate on what he ought to have been concentrating on. He calls it raving. It, and, and I think that summarise that that gives quite a good sense of it. Sorry, I'm, just, I'm not quite clear. My fault. <laughs> I'm being silly. He's reading these romances yeah. and he can't concentrate on them. Well, so no, he, starts he, he can't concentrate on more serious things that he's supposed to be concentrating on and his, his, his sort of imagination go, go, goes rampant. And that, that seems to be the problem, that he feels that what is important is to be able to control your thoughts and to be able to put them to good use, whereas this, the, 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 whole, the essence of this raving is the extent to which your, your thoughts are out of control. And so part of, I think part of writing these moral treatises is to enforce that control. So, we, um, we know that he, or we know from the, him from his own, his own writings that he had a, a religious experience, a great thunderstorm. It's supposed to have triggered his religiosity, mm. a, a religious conviction. And then he almost as suddenly swung to science in the 1640s, this man of a general European education, Simon said in Florence, talking to Hebrew scholars and so on. So, did anything of a similar uh, dramatic nature cause that? 
Well, it's very interesting. The, the, you can pinpoint the, the time when he became seriously interested in science quite, quite precisely. I mean, he, he had had a, a kind of general smattering of science um, as part of his education under Isaac Markham's. And, in fact, he happened to be in Italy at the time when Galileo died, and he mentions this in his autobiography, and um, some commentators have sometimes attached great significance to that. But it really that, that is really fairly a fairly minor interest at that point. And so it is throughout the 1640s when he is writing these heavy treatises about how to pursue um, proper morality. So but then the suddenly, in, in, in the summer of 1649, he discovers science in a really big way and he writes ecstatically about it to his sister, Lady Ranelagh, who, who, who we may talk about more, um, and, and begins to write a new kind of book which is about books, books about um, the significance of understanding the natural world as an act of piety. Just for an act of sort of rather common curiosity, what was was there a thing you say he suddenly used? I think you used that word. Yeah. Did he read something? Did he meet somebody? It, I mean, it, it's frustrating. It, I, it, it would be nice to be able to say there was one clear reason. It always is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I mean, this was the year that you know could it have been due to external circumstances? This was just after the English Civil War. It was the year that the king was 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 was, was executed. Um, but I think that Boyle was never very concerned with political developments like that and it seems to be a much more intellectual concern about um, a, th- a threat to religion that he thought came from intellectual activity which he associated with traditional systems of natural philosophy particularly that of Aristotle and and he becomes excited by the extent to which a new form of understanding the natural world particularly associated with um, with, with, with experiment and with chemistry offers a better route to, to, to to understanding God than 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 what prevailed hitherto. Uh, Anna Marie Roos, he wasn't a man to do things by half. We haven't. Simon said at the very beginning, Simon Schaffer, about the wealth of his father. The wealth of his father was he meant he gave this fourteenth child a huge estate in Dorset, so he never had to work or live in which he, he built himself a laboratory. Um, but following up what you said, having got the science, he went to what was the melting pot of modern science. He went to Oxford in the sixteen fifties. Sixteen fifty six to sixteen sixty eight. He lived in Oxford. He lived on the high street in Deep Hall with a hotelier. Uh, by the name of John Cross, also apothecary, because he had access to a chemical laboratory. And his older sister, Lady Ranala, actually helped him secure those lodgings. She watched out quite a lot for him. Um, He was part of a experimental club that was at Wadham College, um, presided over by the warden of Wadham, John Wilkins. Um, John Wilkins is a very interesting figure. Um, Although he was married to a relative of Oliver Cromwell and obviously had parliamentarian ties, he also was friends with um, high Anglicans and royalists. So he sort of was a diplomat between the two factions. And he formed this experimental club to explore the new natural philosophy outside of political and religious concerns. Boyle was exposed to the thinking of Thomas Willis, who was a member, who was a physician discovering the circle of Willis and fermentation, and wrote some works on fevers, which are very interesting. He was a, um, other members were Christopher Wren, and more importantly for Boyle, Robert Hooke, who was a, a servitor 
at, at Christ Church, but also actually ended up um, lodging with Boyle and helping him um, develop his new experimental science. This is where the work on the air pump and the barometer really get going um, as part of this experimental club. And I think he, uh, Boyle experienced a tremendous amount of intellectual stimulation. I mean, Wilkins himself um, was building flying machines in the courtyard of Wadham College and wrote this wonderful book called The Discovery of the World in the Moon, or he was trying to, um, working with Hooke to develop um, machines that had springs in them to sort of boing you off the magnetic pull of the earth and launch you off to the moon and then um, pull you in by the magnetic uh, atmosphere they thought was surrounding the moon. And Wilkins said, of course there's another you know, world in the moon. I mean, why would God have provided us with a planet in such convenient habitation if we weren't to explore it? So these are the types of things that Boyle was being exposed to when he was in Oxford. It couldn't have been more intense and more felicitous for him, could it really? Because there you are with like almost all of them, not nobody as rich or as aristocratic as he was, but but gentlemen who had time and leisure and waywardly, as it seemed at the time, followed rather what seemed like the idiotic pursuits in Wadham College Gardens and so on. And it was just made for him because he came in from a different angle. He wasn't a university man. He wasn't. He worked it out for himself, but he fitted in, in, in very closely. In fact, centrally, he was a founding member of the Royal Society. What became, out of that garden, of the Royal Society? Yes. Uh, the, the, um, well, we're having a little celebration at, at Wadham in September about, about Wilkins, and we're exploring issues like that. To what extent were the men there um, leading to the Royal Society, people like Christopher Wren? Um, I think what was interesting, it gave Boyle the ability to be part of the university while also being outside of the university. It gave him the intellectual freedom. He didn't have to be steeped in the in Aristotelian classics and follow a prescribed course of action. Boyle also had the imagination to see the ability of somebody like Robert Hooke and um, take take advantage of a mutual advantageous relationship of Hooke's mechanical genius. This is something Boyle talks about a lot in his development of experimental philosophy, how important it is to cultivate the talents of what he called tradesmen. But what I think he's really saying is engineers. He, uh, he started learning the importance of constructing really good experimental apparatus. Can we concentrate for a moment or two on Hook Simon Schaffer, the most extraordinary man, um, and Boyle worked closely with them, and it's doubtful that Boyle could have done as much as he did without Hook. So let's put, I, I think that's right, isn't it? Um, it's... Uh, Anna-Marie's mentioned it. Can you take on the Hook-Boyle connection a little further, please? At the time, so from the later 1650s onwards, their relationship is absolutely fundamental to a very large range of Boyle's projects and also, one shouldn't forget, to Hook's projects. As Anna-Marie has said, there is an enormous amount of mutual benefit to a relationship between a, let's not understate it, fabulously wealthy young Anglo-Irish aristocrat of great piety and great moral and civil status and um, perhaps a slightly more prickly, certainly more self-assertive figure of the most extraordinary mechanical ingenuity, to use the language of the time. And there's a range of... Microscope and so on. There's a range of experimental projects which involve really very sophisticated and very complex setups, often using glass and mechanical gearing to achieve artificial ends. 
And the relationship between the two has often been subject to controversy afterwards because historians and scientists tend to get really very hung up on questions of priority. And an intimate, dynamic and quotidian relationship like that will generate priority problems. What seems to me to be striking in retrospect is that what, with one or two very notable exceptions, one doesn't see those kinds of issues as ferocious or salient at the time. Can I get to the air pump? Why mm-hmm. was it significant to work on the air pump and how did they crack it? The air mattered in Oxford for that group for several reasons, uh, climatology, human nature, life and so on. Perhaps above all, William Harvey, who had been the late King's physician and a huge influence Uh, both at the time and posthumously on the group in Oxford, had shown that the blood circulates around the human body and that the reason for that is so that something that enters the blood from the air in the lungs can be carried round the body, which suggests the question, what is it in the air that enters the lungs and thus the blood that makes us and all animals live? And part of Boyle's genius was to see that if you were worrying about what there is in the air that's special, a really good idea would be to get rid of the air and see what happens. And that, in a way, is the essence of an experimental approach. If you're really worried about the difference something makes, get rid of it and see what happens. In 1657 and 8, Boyle heard from Germany of the existence of a machine which could apparently remove the air from a closed space. And with Hook, indispensable for this, and uh, an instrument maker called Ralph Greatrex, they design and build through 59 an air pump, which not only gets rid of the air from a space, but, and this is crucial, makes a space without air, but in which you can act. You can do experiments in a space from which the air is removed. And that was Hook's design, Great Rex ingenuity, and Boyle's vision coming together in 1659 to make this extraordinary machine. Michael Hunter, how um, important was that? Well... It was important in all sorts of ways. I mean, for one thing, it um, provided experimental evidence concerning the, 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 the characteristics of the air, as Simon has said, so that you, it, it turned out that, you know, that, that, that sound could you, fail to be transmitted if you created a vacuum or um, animals died if, if, they, if the air was taken out and they were inside the receiver or um, uh, a candle went out, etc. And so, you know, for the first time, it, it, there was sort of tangible evidence about, about the, 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 the actual effects. Did, there. did this lead to Boyle's Law? Well, Boyle's Law came as a slightly secondary yes. development because it isn't actually based on the air pump but on the J-tube, which is a, a, another piece of apparatus which... Um, Boyle, which 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 was developed and which Boyle saw the potential of um, relating to the vacuum, in which um, the relationship between the the the, the, pre- the, the, the the pressure and volume of air turned out to be a constant. 
Um, but what I was actually just going to say about the the, the, the book, the new experiments, that I mean, it, it was in a sense a new kind of book. It uh, was published in 1660, New Experiments Concerning the, the, the Spring of the Air and Its Effects, and it set out a series of experiments. And I don't think there had ever really been a book quite like it before. It, it, it created a kind of model of a scientific book, which I think was absolutely fundamental to the progress of, 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 of science in England at that time. With Boyle, we're going to have to keep a balance between his intense interest with Hooke in the particular and his in experimentation and his great, great success there and his, his view of, his, we might call it just for the sake of a word, a larger view of life, religious and idea of the universe. So how did he think, what were his views on how the universe worked given that he was doing this particular experimentation? The in in a sense by moving forward to to the experiments with the air pump in 1658 and 1659, we've slightly fast forwarded um, from the developments that had been get going on during the time when Boyle went to Oxford. He went to Oxford to be part of this very rich, uh, intellectually rich group that Anne Maria's Anne Maria's has described, um, and I think that 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 in, encouraged him to to read widely in um, the findings of of, of, of science. As, it, as they existed at that time. And I think he became fascinated by the idea that the world was a machine, that the, 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 the universe operated through matter in motion, which was an idea that, that, that was being put forward particularly by French natural philosophers in this period, particularly Pierre Gassendi and René Descartes. And the, their, their views on the nature of the mechanical universe differ slightly, but, but the, the, the fundamental idea that the universe was a machine was what appealed to Boyle. And, in fact, he... he tried to capitalise on that at the expense of disagreements between those who t t took a mechanistic view of, ha of how the world operated. Anna Mirrors, how did his approach to experimentation, uh, how was that influenced by his philosophy? Um, this is very interesting. Um, Michael's mentioned the idea of the machine, and one thing that uh, Boyle said is that you can look at a look at a clock uh, mechanism, but we, unless you open up the clock, you really can't just know what's happening unless you really look underneath. And he has a passionate commitment to experimentation. Um, his book on the spring of the air was a very new treatise. The spring of the air. Yes, yeah, yeah. of atmospheric but, uh, pressure. Uh, when you pushed it in, it would spring it back. It spring back because that's the inverse relationship fun, between pressure and volume. Yeah. Yes. And uh, the, that book, when you read that book and you read his account of the experiments, you can actually recreate them. Um, it was a form of, I think, it's, and Simon has mentioned this, in virtual witnessing, where you can actually read through those things and recreate that experiment in, uh, if you were doing it in another laboratory. And that's very new. This is what m modern scientific papers are based upon. That's what materials and methods sections are. We took this much of the supernatant, we ran it through the centrifuge, we did this. It's all described in passive voice because we're trying to show you what we have done so you can recreate it and test it yourself. And so Boyle used that prolific writing style that he had in his moralistic treatises and he applied it to experiment and um, and in that sense he was creating Because he had a three jargon. stages in experiment Eddie, he was quite firm about it the, will you tell us? Um, well, he, he thought that there had to be a blend between reason and between experiment and the first thing that one had to do is not be full, you know, he said you can never have preconceived ideas about um, what you're going to find, you have to 
um, do your experiment. You have to test for one variable. This is when he did his air, air pump experiments, when he did the Torricellian, um, recreated the Torricellian barometers. He made sure that he had a constant temperature of the gas rather than so he could test the inverse relationship between pressure and volume. So you have to eliminate variables. Um, then you make your conclusions from your experiments. You repeat your experiments, um, and then you go forward from there. But he did the second thing, was he? he did his experiment in front of witnesses so they could see it was being done. That's right. And I presumably that it would be done fairly, there was no cheating, but it wasn't magic, there it was. And then he wrote it up very carefully, yes. saying this is what happened. That's so that, right. So that other people could do it. That's so exactly right. So very much three stages. I presume that's what you were referring to earlier when you were saying something new. Yes, and the, the, I think he's also very painstaking in his exposition of the experimental method. That's right. it, one of his most important books um, is called Certain Physiological Essays, and this has it, 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 essays on how experiments should be done, on the problems that can arise with experiments, on the need to record even experiments that failed, etc. And I think that um, sort of uh, uh, systematic and painstaking quality of his work is, 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 is one of his crucial contributions. Briefly, Anna. Uh, yes, I mean, he also takes us um, from, of course, the Baconian idols, doesn't he? They were all influenced by Francis Bacon, and Bacon wrote very clearly about how nature can trick you. She can make an absolute fool out of you if you're not very careful how you do your experiments and eliminate your variables. And the Baconian program was all about what the Royal Society was. You know, find it out for yourself. Now, there's a, something turns up here as well in, 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 in the notes I, that I made. And it's it's very it's I think it's fascinating and you're the man to take it on. He had a major disagreement with Hobbes, Hobbes's materialism, thinking it would lead to anti-religion and so on. Is it possible to find a connection between the way in which Boyle thought about his religion and the way Boyle thought about his science? Can I just say one more sentence without becoming completely boring? Because the idea was that along comes science, religion is redundant. And science goes on. Now, that does not seem to have happened in terms of people's beliefs. But was there an intellectual connection? I think there was a fundamental connection in Boyle's projects between um, the project of piety, not simply investigating nature because it is made and organised and run by God, though he certainly believes that, but also, perhaps even more importantly and hence his great disagreement with Thomas Hobbes, that to show people the way in which nature is organised and runs is to show them God's activity in the world. In other words, nature is a way in which God preaches to us. So any account of nature which doesn't show what is divine, what is created, what is powerful, um, is therefore dangerous. But, but is the way that he believes in religion, uh, which is a belief system, and the way that he takes to science, which is a different system, what connection do you find between them? I'll come to you in a moment. I, I'm just pounding away. Is there a connection? you say, the religious way, I think, <coughs> makes me think scientifically in that way. Is, is there a seamless... I, I don't think it's seamless, but I think it's anachronistic, perhaps, for us now to imagine that there are two worlds, that of religion, that of science, which are, by that very fact, separated in the 17th century. It's almost the opposite. Natural philosophy must, 
at this period, or so it seems to me, define itself in terms of piety, devotion, and the doctrine of the deity, and vice versa. Um, major theologians must, in a very important way, give an account of what is the relation between the deity and his creation. So one, one sees, and Boyle is the superb example of this, he's the author of a book called The Christian Virtuoso, one sees a public image being constructed, not uncontroversially, for these experimenters and natural philosophers, which makes them seem, and many of them are, pious, virtuous Christian believers. Can I turn to Michael? Michael, can you take up the row with Hobbes, which is very bitter and quite extended? Can you give us a synopsis of what was at the core of it? Thomas Hobbes, great British philosopher, Leviathan, so on, materialist, where we go. Yes. Can I just, could I just make a, 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 oh, yeah, a, a just, just, just try go back slightly to what Simon was saying. I mean, I just wanted to offer a slightly different um, relationship between Boyle's religion and his, and his science. Um, namely, that Boyle is interested in a, a form of religiosity which we've now almost completely forgotten called casuistry, the examination of cases of conscience, whereby you meticulously examined the, 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 the rationale of, the, of, 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 of actions that you took or decisions that you made, and to to be sure that you had taken the the, 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 the the taken the step that would please God most, and he spends hours and hours examining his conscience in that way and being advised on it. Actually, in fact, by by by, by churchmen who helped him on this. What is interesting is that he he transfers that terminology to the laboratory. He says to um, Bishop Burnett it, um, that he made conscience uh, made conscience of great exactness in experiments, and he uses the terminology of casuistry when describing his experiments. He explains how he had to satisfy his scruples about um, su some phenomenon that he observed, etc. And so I think there is a very close link between his. His, his sort of practical religious life and his practical scientific life in that sense, which it's perhaps, you know, it may seem almost um, a, a small thing, but in fact I think it is very important in understanding the relationship between the two. But shall I now return to the Hobbes question? I, yes, uh, I, I, I've got a bit... Uh, if you could briskly, that would be great. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that, the, 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 that he thought it very important to refute Hobbes because of Hobbes's reputation as... as causing a religion and in fact he is very explicit in saying that in the preface to his 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 attack his his um his 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 attack on hobbes he specifically says this could do good in 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 religious affairs because there are many people who don't really understand these technical scientific disputes and and, and if i could show that that my reasoning is better than hobbes in science it may in, 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 in discourage people from following hobbes in religion Anna-Marie, Anna -Marie, what were his most important contributions in chemistry, do you think? Well, I mean, obviously, that we discussed it, the Boyle's Law. Um, he also um, was what was known as a, a, corpuscularian, a corpuscularian, and that there was um, a revival, even in the 16th centuries, of ancient Greek atomism that posited that you had small bits of matter that moved around in a vacuum and those things would combine, some people said, randomly to make up everything around us. Now, 
Um, Boyle didn't follow ancient Greek atomism mainly because if things are combining randomly, you have no place for the deity, do you? Um, so uh, what he does say, though, is he calls them minima natura. There are there are bits of matter. Um, he was he was he wouldn't exactly say specifically um, how they interacted. He says I can't see it with my own eyes, but I think that they do. I think there are certain particles in the air that have a spring that cause atmospheric pressure. I think they combine in different ways. Um, and uh, you could have strong acids and bases, for instance, uh, corpuscles that could interact with other corpuscles and cause chemical change. And that's another um, type of research program that he did. He formed, he did one of the first, what we would anachronistically call a pH indicator, usurpa violets, to delineate the difference between acids and alkalis, which was a powerful experimental tool. It was a new experimental tool in the chemical laboratory. Most people had done a lot of distillation. They did distillation apparatus. The litmus test. Yes, that's right. That's all it was, is the litmus test. But when you can use acids and bases to make reactions, that's very interesting. He um, was he actually did the protochemistry for the phosphorus match, although he didn't um, uh, invent the match. Uh, and he worked with another one of these tradesmen to actually, tradesmen who went on to commercially manufacture phosphorus, which is of great interest to the virtuosi of the time. So, Simon Shafat, we talk at this stage, we're in the 60s, he's incredibly prolific. Uh, he's everywhere. I mean, we're talking about a bit of science, but he's, doing, he's, he's writing paper after paper after paper. Medicine is just one area, and so on. Um, there's a book called The Skeptical Chemist. Is that very significant in his work? Uh, it, does he, do people around him feel something massive is happening in the intellectual world here? There are earthquakes every 10 minutes coming from the Mal, which he, Pal Mal, where he lives now with his sister, and from Dorset. Is that... I think that's that's right. I'm not sure the word earthquake is quite well, the, the rest, easy, restoration easy, word here. Too easy to reach for. But, um, yes, I mean, Boyle is the towering figure in the experimental philosophical community in London in the 1660s, or so it seems to me, and um, his reputation is absolutely extraordinary. The diarist John Evelyn... This is one of, I think, the most graphic evocations of Boyle's character, compares Boyle with a Venetian glass, which seems transparent and seems fragile, but is in fact robust and strong and resists what might seem to be attack or pressure. The sceptical chemist that you've mentioned is, in my view, a fascinating work because after Boyle's death, it became one of the most widely cited and perhaps slightly less widely read of his works. It's fantastically difficult to read, I think, but it set up part of Boyle's repute. It's a dialogue with five voices in which the questions of chemistry and alchemy, of the elements that make up chemical materials, are all discussed. And above all, I think, what Sceptical Chemist does is to argue, on the one hand, for the nobility of chemistry, that it should not simply be the work of artisans and tradesmen, but that it can aspire and should and must aspire to the status of a certain kind of philosophy. And at the same time, certainly in the second edition of Sceptical Chemist, Boyle teases apart, fascinatingly for us, a kind of vulgar chemistry, 
which is merely interested, as it might be, in transmutation and profit, and a nobler form of chemistry, which is clearly alchemical, which, from which Boyle hopes the greatest things in philosophical enlightenment. So as a, as a programme and a vision of what experimental projects might achieve in the chemical word, it's a really remarkable text. To stick to this for for a moment uh, with you, Michael Hunter, the idea we've got the Royal Society now. We've got Oldenburg publishing the transaction, which was remarkable. Very soon, they're being published, and people in Europe are taking up these transactions, and it is the oldest philosophical transactions in the world, and very very influential all over the place. What is his involvement in the society? How are they still grouped together as they were in in High Street, Oxford, or are they split into their different places? Do they still feel as if they're a group working forward? Well, I think the the, the core members of the Royal Society did. The issue is where is is the extent to which Boyle formed part of that core group. He undoubtedly is seen as the exemplar of the Royal Society. Oldenburg, both through the philosophical transactions and also through his assiduous correspondence, is constantly promoting Boyle as the model of how science should be done, uh, right, right, right through until Oldenburg's de- death in 1677. Um, but but Boyle himself was always a bit sort of um, semi-detached from the Royal Society, uh, partly because in the 1660s he remained quite peripatetic. He didn't move to London at the Restoration, but only towards the end of the decade. And during that decade, he's constantly going backwards and forwards between Oxford and London. So there are long periods when he fails to go to meetings. Um, and he, he, he becomes enthusiastic about some of the society's projects, but less, less concerned about others. He is, I think, influenced by the society himself, ironically. Although he had always been a Baconian, I think he became a more, more precisely Baconian in his method under the influence of the Royal Society, particularly through structured data collection which the society very much made a virtue of in its earliest years. Boyle had been a bit sort of random in his data collection uh, uh, in the the Oxford period, but he becomes much more precise in the way he organises his work under the influence, I think, of of, of Bacon via the Royal Society. So it's a very fruitful relationship in that way, although perhaps not quite what you might have expected. Anna Marius, we've got science, not called science, natural philosophy, and we have religion. But we also have alchemy, in which he's intensely interested That's... and writes a lot about, as does his great admirer Newton, and it's around. So can you... What attracted him to alchemy? Um, there were a few things that attracted him to alchemy. One thing is the potential of alchemy to make panaceas or medicines. Um, Boyle was um, not only of a generous heart, he also was what we would call a valetudinarian. He was ill a lot, and he was always experimenting with medicines, particularly um, with his sister, Lady Ranala. And so he thought that perhaps if we could invent something like the alkahest, we could break matter into its smallest component parts, and we could then recreate that matter how we wanted to to make medicines that could cure us we and and that was important to him the second thing i think he thought was important is is that he 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 saw the potential for um, alchemical transmutation to relieve uh, or to restore man to their prelapsarian state in the Garden of Eden. I mean, if you can use science to give us all the benefits of technological improvement, that's a wonderful thing. But there's a tension uh, in in Boyle's works, and I think in most of the um, chemists we call them, we call it C H Y M I S T instead of alchemist versus chemistry, because this period's quite unique. We've got components of both. 
we've got um, ideas of transmutation and turning um, base metals into gold, but we also have the beginnings of what I would even call chemical stoichiometry. What you put in in the reactants must come out in the products. One of Boyle's colleagues, George Starkey, has this very explicitly. He realizes that you have to have some conservation of matter. So we're sort of in a transitional period here. Um, Boyle, on the one hand, sees the potential for alchemy, but he worries, as did Newton, if, for instance, the secret, and Boyle thought he saw the transmutation of, of metals actually take place with Gilbert Burnett. They actually witnessed it. They said they saw it in the journal book in the Royal Society. If that secret gets out, what's it going to do to the money supply? How is it going to turn society upside down? And so he, he for a while, he, there's, there's always this, this back and forth in this work. You know, you can think that if he's writing other scientific books or he's incredibly explicit about what he's doing experimentally, then why not do that for alchemy? But yet there's a danger there as well. It is wonderful to spend the next hour on alchemy, religion and, and natural philosophy. But to stick to boil, can we talk about one more thing, the prism and colours? Yes. So in Because Newton was very influenced by that. And of very. course, it's, again, it's one of the many amazing things that this man did in his very. private laboratory with his ill health living with his sister. Along with the avalanche earthquake of books that he produced in the 1660s. One of the most fascinating, I think, is this experimental history of colours, which um, is an extraordinarily rich survey of the phenomena and reports then known uh, about light and colour. As Michael said, Boyle began to organise extraordinary data banks of information and stories, and his work on colour is no exception. He collected stories about a blind Dutch organist who could allegedly feel colours with his fingers and was sent a ribbon from Holland, which this Dutchman had used. He... Um, tells of his sister seeing coloured visions uh, when, when she was ill. And above all, he uses the glass prism to make artificial colours, which he calls irises. Both Samuel Pepys and Isaac Newton read this book very closely with very different effects. Sam Pepys read it on a boat trip every Sunday afternoon up the Thames, and Newton read it in his study in Cambridge with revolutionary effect. Finally, uh, Michael Hunter, what would you say was his legacy now? I think, well, the 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 the, the emphasis on controlled and properly recorded experiment is the most crucial thing. I think Boyle really did make that. Um, normal in science in a way that hadn't been the case before and in that sense I suppose he invented the experimental method that modern science has used ever since. I think if, if, if I were asked I would say that that, that was the, the, the most crucial thing. I could say more but maybe I think I think that he, he is a model to, to modern science also in his sort of open-mindedness about explanation. He is he, he thinks it very important to establish factual data through experiment etc but is much much more diffident about how it's explained. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael Hunter, Simon Schaffer and Anna-Marie Roos. Next week we'll be talking about the philosophy of solitude. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Well, we leave it to the people who exactly. listen to it to take it on, don't we? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Do they rush to the website or to your yes. books or <laughs> his books. Yes. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I don't know, if they're reading Boyle in the flesh, they might go, oh. <laughs>
What peeps have said about the book on colours is, is I couldn't basically so I didn't understand much of it or any of it, but I know he's a brilliant man. Yes, yeah. that is yes. Well, I think he laughs, yeah. says Peeps in one diary entry, and I always think, why? And <laughs> um, what's that about? Um, as Michael said, um, Peeps is a major collector of Boyle. Yeah. The mm. Peeps Library in Maudlin yeah. is I a very good collection. Mm. In... I think that Boyle was Peeps's model scientist. You know, I think true. that that was the, Pe- Boyle science was what Peeps thought was real science. I think, more, or dis- ironically, Peeps gave the imprimatur to, to, to Principia, but I think that yeah. he was much more at home with That's Boyle right. science. And I think he could understand. I, I think the diary is a bit misleading. In, in he, he sort of, sort of slightly, sort of puts up his hands in alarm when he comes across a difficult book. But if he works at it, Pe- when Pe- Pete works oh, at a yeah. book. He can yeah. he can get inside it. You know, I think he tends to be a bit patronised in retrospect. Oh, it yeah. is a bit self-deprecating. I mean, he is, after all, many Sundays on his boat trip from home up to Barn Elms. He spends the afternoon reading this book, uh, and that's serious. Mm. I mean, I mean, yeah. he, he just, people just had the intellectual imagination. I mean, yeah. he did everything from, you know, collect boil to sponsoring a big book on fish, mm. you know, and subsidized most of the plates for it, you know. Yeah. And so he has, he has that, it, but that's part of virtuosity, wasn't it? It was part of that interdisciplinary mm. thinking. That's right. I mean, one of the things we didn't have time to get onto, which um, Michael's written about very well, is Boyle is also an enormously important patron. I mean, he sponsors um, extraordinarily important publishing ventures, lectures in the will, um, equipment. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just amazed to discover recently that he he paid for Hooke's sixty foot telescope. Yeah, yeah which is that, amazing. Uh, you know, it was so expensive that it looked as if no one in the UK was going to be able to afford it. Um, this London instrument maker made this lens, but you know, it it was so it 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 was such a complex piece of work that it was so expensive that it looked as if it was not going to be available yeah. to the Royal Society at all. And Boyle just sort of stepped in and signed a check, you know? yeah. and he was capable of doing that because he was essentially a millionaire. You know the the income that he got. It's not just land in yeah, Dorset, but yeah. in it's the Irish rents mostly. I keep um, thinking about that income. And what is it? It's, a, it's four, about three thousand. Three thousand a year, which is like which is huge, huge. Un, unimaginable. Un- 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 fourteen children. Did he settle them all as as? Amply as he settled. Yes, uh, actually, the sons. Mm. I mean, obviously, the daughters he didn't need Probably to because mm. they ma- he married them well. In fact, uh, in fact, but but the sons, you know, the, the, um, the, the seven sons. Many, well, no, they didn't all survive. You see, oh, one was killed in the war. He married them all four, economically. There were four sons, and yes, they were all as well or better. I mean, the Earl of Burlington, the first son, was even, even you know even better off than Bob. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, mar- he married them all economically, though. I think I think Lady Ronald got a bit of a raw deal she with Arthur got the Jones. She the end of the pineapple. Oh, it seems to he, I mean, bad, uh, yeah, that yeah. was a, that was a Lord horrible Lord. marriage. She she separated from him and went to live in London. In so the this, 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 this wonderful father just took his daughters and said, "You will marry this chap." Well, he. I mean, Pretty the point much. is, he yeah. was a great, you know, ambition had great ambition for the dynasty, yeah. and so he wanted to marry them well. That didn't always mean happily. No, <laughs> I mean, I think the most revealing thing is uh, Lady Ronald writing and saying, "Find." Your husband was guilty of play. 
Um, mm, and I think somebody else wrote about him that the, the best thing that could be said about him, he's a churl who often goes to bed drunk. And so I mean, and, but when she, yeah, and so when she goes yeah. to when she goes to lo- when she goes to London, she you know, and then sets up an independent life for herself, of course. And, you know, then she can get involved in things she's interested in, which is often after philosophical. No, we should have a program about the her and the other sisters, like Anne and Mary, That's both right, extremely yeah. interesting That's figures. Right. Tom right. Morris arriving on cue with offers of tea. I think we... There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.